Whatever it is, hope is the key. If you've got hope in your future, there's power in your present. And hope is like air. Everybody needs it. Mm-hmm. If you got a rebellious child, the number one thing they need is the thing they least deserve, which is praise. Mm-hmm. And if you'll just praise them, it'll change them. We all need hope. We all need praise. We all need encouragement. John Marsh is the co-founder of Marsh Collective and host of the Redemptification Podcast, serial entrepreneur and investor helping steward over $1.5 billion in redemptive real estate in 12 small towns with populations of 800 to 180,000 people around America. John and his team created what they call irreplaceable real estate and pioneered historic downtowns as a new asset class of real estate. And beyond that, John's got an incredible story. We talk about life and marriage and addiction and uh, as usual, kind of start from childhood and go all the way through. And his journey is rich, uh, one I really connected with and I hope you will too. Welcome back to uh, another episode of the Gravity Podcast. Um, it's been a while, actually. Uh, we've taken a break and uh, for the summer, so we're happy to be back uh, recording podcasts again. And our first guest is John Marsh. John, uh, welcome. Thank you for taking some time to to be on the show. Oh, thank you for doing it. I feel like you and I have so many common things that my heart harmonizes with some of the things you say. So it's a blessing to be here. Yeah, thanks. You know, we've just recently been introduced uh, by mutual our mutual friend Tucker. And it's nice sort of when, you know, people can connect each other and there is that 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 harmony, as you said. And I think there's a lot of overlap and I'm hoping to get to know you even more and understand just, you know, how much uh, we might be similar and and, you know, kind of on this shared journey that that you and I were talking about before we 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 started recording. So, let's start at the beginning uh and and let me just kind of understand your your early upbringing. We were just talking about, you know, fatherhood and 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 so tell me, you know, sort of what your beginnings were like, where you're from and and your family dynamics and any sort of insights to you at a at a, you know, early stage in life. Well, I was born in um, in Albany, Georgia, southeast Georgia. Um, my mom and dad, who raised me, tried to have a kid for 13 years and couldn't. Adopted me, and 18 months later, had my little brother. Mm. So um, it's really incredible to be, you know, to be found and to end up in a good place. I mean, I, I won the lottery as far as parents. My parents loved me and told me I could do anything, and I believed them. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, really obeyed my parents and did everything they said as a young boy, AB honor roll, beta club until until I did something that I felt was unforgivable and went off of track. I stepped across the line with a little girl. I was 13. She was 12 and we had sex. And I thought I was just did something that broke everything mm. and started rebelling. And, you know, something about rebellion um, you know, I rebelled and my brother didn't. And there's something in some of us who re- who want to rebel. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I did rebel and that, that I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. And so a number of things 
kind of took me with girls finding acceptance, making money, finding acceptance, Mm -hmm. and doing drugs, finding a little six flags for my Mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, well, let me let me hop in there because that's that's a lot I want to try to dig in deep with you on and. Uh, yeah, my friend Joe Polish, who um, is uh, just a huge sort of uh, recovery addiction, uh, you know, advocate and 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 supporter, and and he he likes to say that you know people people get addicted to drugs um, partly because they're good, <laughs> right? It's like it's you know it's it's not ultimately obviously but you know there's something about it that you liked you said i liked it you know and, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what made me think of joe but um let's back up I, i'm kind of curious about you know this rebellion as you described mm-hmm. it and and maybe you can even before you get into that just share with me a little bit about like your the the your parents your family like what what because you know rebellion can sort of be described um, differently depending on sort of the environment you're in, right? What, mm. what some person thinks is being rebellious might not be to somebody else. And right. it's really know, kind of subjective. Huh? It, it is. And, you know, certainly when you're at like a, a 12, 13 year old age, you know, you're, you're creating your own story or opinion about what words like being rebellious means, right? Like, I don't even know if anybody thought you were rebellious, but you obviously did at that age, you know? So so back up and just tell me a little bit about like that environment that sort of, you know, uh, had you believing you were rebelling, whether, you know, you were or were not, right. you know, yeah. So, well, my mom and dad, my dad and mom got married. He was 25 and she was 15. Mm-hmm. And so for 13 years, they tried to have a kid, couldn't, once they adopted me, um, I, my mom said all I ever wanted to be was a mama. Mm-hmm. That was my whole life. And I was so, I said, I looked at an empty baby carriage for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so she loved me like crazy. And um, my mom and dad had a great relationship, except my mom had this faith and wanting to go to the little Methodist church that was in our, our small town. And um, my dad was just like, I'm not going to that. And 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 he would start, and I didn't know this till later. He would he would drink in the evenings. Mm-hmm. He would go out by the fire and drink. And my mom, it was a huge point of division. Okay, mm-hmm. so there was this divided thing which I didn't know about, but I did know that that he, she wanted to go to every church function and he didn't. And and so there was that that world. Well, you know, I I didn't know church didn't seem like anything except hot dogs and hot girls to me. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for both of them, so I thought it was a niche market. <laughs> but 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 I, what I did know is there was things that I myself believed were wrong. Mm-hmm. And there was things I myself believed were right. And when I violated the things I did wrong, that's what I considered rebellion. Mm-hmm. I, that that and, and the reason I felt is because that and that girl ended up being my girlfriend for, for a number of years. But I took something from her I couldn't give back. Mm-hmm. And I realized mm-hmm. it. And then the next thing I started breaking into cars and. Mm-hmm stealing stuff and acting out and just mm-hmm. breaking things and, you know, beating up mailboxes. It was just, it mm-hmm. was this thing I kept violating my own sins. Mm-hmm. And my well, parents, I- of course, were, where they didn't want me to do that stuff either. I'd get called or have trouble and they'd yeah. be like, why are you doing this? 
Yeah, I mean, in the moment, you know, I think generally, and I can, you know, speak to my own sort of rebellious uh, stage in life, you know, which, you know, probably started for me more in like the, you know, 15, 16 year old stage, but, um, and maybe actually even a little before now I think about it, but, but in any event, um, I was unconscious sort of in, in hindsight, you know, as an adult, having mm-hmm. done a lot of work, looking back, I can see that I was sort of unconsciously acting out. There was, I, I wasn't uh, able to really identify with, you know, the, the, the pain or the trauma or the whatever it was that had me um, sort of acting that way. And I'm curious for you, sort of in hindsight, do you see it the same way? Were you, were you, did you, did you know that this sort of act with the girlfriend at that age was like, were you feeling some shame around that? And then you started to kind of, you know, try to um, soothe by acting out? Or was this sort of a very unconscious time of life for you? It was unconscious. And of course, when you start doing drugs and alcohol, it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was just trying to feel something. I wanted yeah. to be acceptance. And acceptance has been a drug that I've, I've dealt with a lot. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I realized about rebellion, one of my mentors said this, he said, rules and regulations without a relationship always equals rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is my relationship, once I had done something wrong, I started pushing away from the people that were trying to love me and it, it, it amplified that. And uh, mm-hmm. so, and, and, and there's a lot of acceptance in doing the wrong thing with people who are doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It's a tribe almost. And I, sure. and, and I said, I would never try drugs. And me and this guy had a, a, a we had a, an agreement. He said, I'll never try it. You never try it. We'll hold one another accountable. I said, great. Mm-hmm. And then one day he said, Hey John, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna do this. I said I thought we had an agreement. He said I've already done it, and so he did it, and I did it. And mm-hmm. first time I got high, and anything I do, I'm big on it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go big on whatever it is I'm at. I'm a blessing or a butthole, and nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And when I had myself pointed toward this stuff, I started getting. I mean, I wanted to do all. I was afraid they were gonna stop making the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so from 17 to 23, I just. I mean, I was trying to make all the money I could because I could feel that. I was trying mm-hmm. to have all the experiences with sex I could because I could feel that. And and then I was trying to do all the drugs I could. Yeah. And I ended up getting married young. I, I was 21. My wife was 20. Mm-hmm. Within six months, we found out she was pregnant and she was on birth control. And I was like, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this stuff, birth control is a sham. It's, it's like 99% effective. I said, I guess if you do it a hundred times, you're sunk. But the oh, thing- well, let me just uh, jump in there. You know, there's uh, your story is rich and I love it. And I'm relating to a lot of it too. I um, was just laughing because I remember uh, being in my friend's mom's car the summer before freshman year in high school. And, she was giving us the, you know, the drinking and drugs lecture. And I, I, I looked her in the eye and I meant it with all of my being that I was never going to do any of that. And fast forward like three months, I was at a Rolling Stones concert getting drunk and high, you know? <laughs> and so it's, I was just thinking about your agreement with your buddy, you know, <laughs> it's just like how quickly those agreements get broken, you know, it, you meet them fully and boy, um, you know, things change fast. And and then you know if you if you've got some need to feel, right? 
um, for any number of reasons, you know, boy, those things, you know, sex it's and so drinking deep. and drugs, it, 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 it it's, um, you know, again, my, my friend Joe, he, he says, you know, addiction is a solution. It's just not a very good one, right? Well, and I not, like to say we're all addicts and we're just addicted to different stuff. I've been addicted to drugs, alcohol, sex, porno, softball, food and work and all of them. Some of them are more acceptable. Right. That's true. So, That's very so, true. And so, so I'm addictable is the word I use. In fact, we're looking at working on a project called addictable, a book, because I think this is an issue that we are addictable people. Now there's some, nobody's ever gotten really upset and told me, John, you're working too hard, really. I mean, maybe my family, but everybody else high fives you for that, man, you're right. getting it done. Right. Or, or you're great at this. And, I mean, what doesn't it take almost a sense of addiction to win Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. There is a sort of fine line there, you know, the obsession, addiction, call it what you want, right? You're chasing something, usually a feeling. And you're right. Some of them uh, actually are more acceptable, I, I believe. I right. mean, I think there's something to be said. I mean, for... what about working out? You yeah, can be right. addicted to that. And that's a feeling and this juice in the soup. And people are like, man, you look nice. You must be right. doing a lot better. Right, 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 right. It's all there and all um sort of uh depends on, you know, kind of how you're able to be with it and what sort of impact it has on those around you and you know, your own sort of way of being with it. And some will blow up your life and some will uh -huh. not. And you right. know, I mean, if, the, the t if you want to, if you give heroin a try, you probably got problems. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. and here's the thing that I say is I saw this, uh, this little uh, post and it was addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Mm -hmm. But then it said recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Mm -hmm. mm. And I thought That's that was great. interesting. It's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about I, I'm curious about sort of your first a step into the addictive part of work and money, because th this is one that I don't think is talked about enough. Um, because like you said, a lot of people will high five you for doing both, but you, you, you started to kind of share your, you know, at 17, you're st starting to kind of find your way into making money. Um, what were you doing and, and kind of what was that first step in? It was actually 14. So I had the, this, this thing with the girl, I got a girlfriend and I started feeling really accepted because she was pretty. Mm -hmm. And when a girl gets naked, you're not questioning whether or not she accepts you or not. If she wants you, it, it, it's used deeply mm -hmm. felt. It's the biggest form of acceptance I had ever experienced. 14, I started apprenticing in a high end audio shop. And by 15, I was making a thousand dollars a week after school in cash. Mm -hmm. And I remember that money made me feel the same way sex did. Mm. And I remember telling my teacher, she'd say something. I say, I make more money than you do after school. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 the acceptance of money, mm -hmm. what money could do, made me feel. And then doing great work that people praised me for, I was just like, I can't get enough of this. Mm -hmm. I can't get enough of being praised for the things that I do. Mm -hmm. And um, and like I told you, I go big on anything, mm -hmm. and I just went big on it. I was working, you know. 60 hours a week after school mm -hmm. and uh, and had my own. I've never had a real job, so I've really only ever built and made things. So I, d I was doing that high in audio and that's kind of the, that's kind of the way it got me going. And I became addicted to that. Um, and the drugs brought the same thing. Drugs mm -hmm. took me out of 
it gave me a small vacation from myself. Mm-hmm. Now, were you were you doing the drugs while you were also getting the praise and you know, were you sort of kind of stacking it up? Um, how I was that? I had the drugs. Nobody knew around me that I was doing them much except for yeah. one little group. In uh-huh. fact, when my wife married me, she didn't know I, I did drugs. Uh-huh. So it's something I was able to hide till I wasn't. You know, that's yeah. one thing about it. I say the hard time to make good decisions is when your pants are down and you're in the backseat of a car. Uh-huh. It's hard to make good decisions there. And so I would, if you put yourself in environments, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or other things, it, it you can put yourself in environments that are very difficult to make good mm-hmm. decisions. And so what happened? I mean, uh, tell me a little bit, you know, about this sort of stage where you're newly married, you're young, you're still addicted to drugs, you know, sort of what unfolds there that eventually changes that narrative? Well, um, I won my wife through false advertising. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> and I think we all do. Um, I, I think about it. My my young, our oldest son was, but he's about eight or nine years old. He's like, daddy, how did you get mama? I said, what you mean, little buddy? He's like, she's so hot. And you're so not. I said, you better focus on sales, little buddy. That's the only way you get a lady like that. And so I, I gave her the false advertising. I'm going to love you and you're my world. And she was until I could check the box that she was mine. And then I moved on to uh-huh. business and things. And so we got married young, um, found out she was pregnant, had our, our son. And um, at that time, we were in business. I was in the automobile salvage business. I was building totals and had a salvage yard uh-huh. and um, running a couple of different businesses. And we were, I found myself just two and a half, three years in marriage, a million and a half dollars in debt. $99,000 overdrawn, mm-hmm. hooked on meth, going through a um, struggle in my relationship with my wife, and she left me for one of my employees. And I went and at it, and it just drove me to the attic of my house to hang myself. Mm. Mm. And that's where I got to the end of myself, because I kept hearing, kill yourself, kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And the truth was, die to yourself, die to yourself. Mm. I kept hearing, take your life. And the truth was, lay your life down. Mm. How, so, how could you? Thank you for sharing that, and and I and I want to just sort of stick with that for a second because I think this you know conversation around suicide is important because I think it's twenty percent of most rooms we're sitting in. Somebody's thinking about it. I mean, thinking about it. I know, I know, and I think, and I think there's a right piece behind it for my sake. The yeah, we know the life we're living ain't worth living, but yeah. but the solution gets is a perverted solution. Yeah, right. And 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 I actually believe and sort of come to believe this, you know, through others and in sort of a spiritual context that it actually doesn't really solve anything. You, you know, cuz cuz my belief is you just sort of have to start over um and it not to mention at a minimum the damage it does to your family and and generationally what that might do, but look, talk to me a little bit about when you say you kept hearing "kill yourself, take your life," what what was that voice? Was that you? Were you hearing a part of you? Um, and and how did the other voice then come in and ultimately stop you from 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 doing that? Or was it not another voice? Was it a was it somebody else? Well, I, I can only describe it as I was blind. You know, it was darkness. Darkness was speaking to me. And I fantas whatever 
if you want to know if, if, if something's got this kind of hold on you, tell me what you fantasize about. Like after that, later on in life, I fantasized about quitting for a season mm-hmm. of my life. That was my number one fantasy. I said, this is the dumbest thing ever. I'm mm-hmm. fantasizing about quitting mm-hmm. on everything that was putting me in pain. But, um, but I believe that the, the lie of suicide is that you're not supposed to die. I think there needs to be a death before there's a resurrection. Mm. But, but, but the death has to be to those things that are not serving you. And so for me, what happened, I went in the attic of this house, got out on the plywood floor. I had the rope set up to a pulley. I was ready to hang myself. The only concern I had was the rope wouldn't hold. And I got down on that floor and, and I, I tell people, I said, I don't, you know, I don't have anything except what I, what I experienced is that it's like lightning struck me. Every hair on my body stood up and, and love got past the fence. And for the first time in my life, I ever felt clean. Two solid hours, barely lift my pinky off the floor like that. I was transformed. And I didn't quit drugs, but drugs quit me. And I, I was forever changed. I walked back out of that place with hope and love that I had never had before. And that hope has continued. That was 25 years ago or so. And that hope was that, that as long as I have hope in my future, there's power in my present. And you were able to get sober in that moment. I didn't or? get. Yeah, I didn't get. I was done. I mean, You're done. Just that done. Uh, no, no. I, never looked snack, back. No. 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 Nothing. Grades, nothing. No. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, it. It. I didn't God quit it. You. It quit yeah. me. And I said, I didn't even know that kind of stuff is possible. I yeah. mean, it's like I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer or something. I, I wasn't looking for anything, honestly. Okay, so so drugs quit you, but. What about the other addictions? All kinds of things hung on. Yeah. Gotcha. But that one thing yeah. shook off of me. Well, thank it, God. That's a big one to shake. It is. And I mean, it was enough. It was enough to give me margin to get to the next yes. thing. I mean, right. I still had eyes for tons of women and saw all images in my mind. I still had anger issues. I just had all the you yeah. know, all the things all of us have when we're messed up as a sack of hammers. Yeah. But 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 it's slow, but th- what happened is it got me started. I had enough momentum to begin to live into a new life, and I believed I had one, and I did. Yeah. So I went straight down the stairs and told my wife. I said, "My life's been transformed." She said, "You're a liar." Uh huh. And so then I spent almost a year watching her go out on dates with another guy while I was waiting to reconcile. Uh huh. And and we've reconciled, and now twenty something years later, everything I've ever dreamed of in a woman, I found in her. Yeah. Interesting. And see, and, something that's lost and found can be more precious than something that was never lost. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to understand that because I felt like I remember the person that gave me hope, this lady, she was one of our clients in the car business. I went to her and told her what was going on. I want some sympathy from her. We're trying to get people on our side when stuff's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how bad my wife is and how good I am and what she's doing. She's like, oh, you know what? Your marriage can be healed. I said, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. I said, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. It's the dumbest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, I know that because mine was. She said, my husband left me for his secretary and our marriage has been reconciled. And what I realized, you can't give what you don't live. Mm-hmm. And they were able to come alongside us and give us the tools to help us reconcile. Mm-hmm. And, and, and hope is a bridge. Because once she said that, you know what I started doing? I started believing. Mm-hmm. And you can't shake it. You know, as long as you're doing something you believe is right, you have the power to do it. The minute you lose the the belief that it's right, you lose the power to do it. I mean, think about the last time you thought you were in the wrong job or had the wrong partner. 
Mm-hmm. All the power went away to live in that the same way, just when you believe that. And so she t- she helped us and taught us that it's love and forgiveness that it takes. And if you want to know what the key to a great marriage is, great marriages are built, not found. <laughs> it takes a lot of work like abs. You'll mm-hmm. never see anybody get abs hardly without working on them. Mm-hmm. They're pretty tough to get. And so what we learned is how to forgive one another. Mm. And if 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 you got unforgiveness, it's nuclear waste in the basement of your mm-hmm. relationships. And so if you want to know if you got unforgiveness, you probably one of the ways I know is if I've got it and I still have it, because forgiveness is not a vaccination. Mm-hmm. It's a second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year choice of your will. Mm-hmm. I still have to forgive my wife for what happened, and she has mm-hmm. to forgive me for what happened. Mm-hmm. Now it isn't the same. We're not. We may be living 30 days of heaven and a day of hell where we used to live 30 days of hell and a day of heaven. Right, right, but right, right. But, but we learn to forgive one another and learn to find it. But if you fuss with somebody in the shower and you win and they ain't there, you probably got unforgiveness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. So uh, amazing and so much uh, wisdom there. And, you know, it's, it's this is the journey of your life and mm-hmm. you've come to this wisdom by going through that journey and um, by suffering. Yeah. Through suffering. Right. Yeah. It, but, but I mean, it's, it's beautiful really, you know, it's, I, I have this uh, sort of um, saying that I've just kind of parked somewhere probably for a, a book at some point, but um, it's, I call it a beautiful crisis. Mm. And, you know, there's something about the potential for really beautiful outcomes through suffering. And whether that ultimately be in your own life or as that other couple, you know, was able to do for you, you know, your life can serve as your suffering can serve uh, to the benefit of you and many others. And that sounds exactly, you know, like what's happened for you. Thank God you were the beneficiary of somebody else's wisdom to be able to be in this spot to have your own. And And we ended up starting to use that. Like, I believe you comfort others with the same comfort you've been comforted with. Ash and I have helped reconcile over 200 broken marriages. I believe it. And and, and it's because when we sit down with them, we have something to give. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge is we sometimes still fuss on the way to meet somebody or fuss on the way home. Because mm-hmm. you have to wrap that yellow paper around us. We're still under construction. Yeah, yeah. But but we're further down the road. We've got some healing, and we know how to resolve conflict, and we know yeah. how to find one another, and we know how to trust one another and love one another. And it's just, uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it, when you can find relationships where they're healthy, they will have conflict. Mm-hmm. We call it yeah. heated fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a. Um, I've also heard it called sort of healthy tension. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's also true, sort of in in teamwork or you know uh, in business as well. Business teams, you create anything clients. creative. There's got to be a healthy tension, um, and and you know others, you know, have kind of you know shared sort of the value of bubbling up conflict, right? Like the Gottmans will say that the healthiest couples argue, right? Mm. Um, well, right. and we engineer our times to fight. We fight one time a week, every week, same time, and then we do it one time a year. In a big way. So every week we had this meeting we call our VI meeting, Visionary Integrator. But uh-huh. we 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 gonna we know we're gonna get heated at that thing because we're gonna talk about the stuff that gets us heated. And yeah. we do it every week on Sunday afternoons without yeah. fail. We know when we're gonna fight, so we go ahead and take care of it. And then one time a year we take a day or two with our mentors 
and we have all the big fights we're going to have for the year that day. We talk yeah. about all the stuff we don't want to talk about and all the stuff we know is going to get us sideways. Yeah. 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 It's great. Tell me about, I, I want to, I mean, ultimately you, you're mentioning kind of VI and and I'm assuming you're using EOS. Um, are you, are you know about EOS? We just kind of build our, yeah, our own things out of the tools and we took our tools for business and pulled them down into our marriage. Our marriage, yeah. we, we created and, adapted tools so we run our our marriage just like our business mm-hmm. and with so tell me- running our our companies it's really you know five years ago i built we had 25 companies five years ago i stepped down and she stepped into them uh-huh. and she's got it down to five now but she's running all of our companies now and i'm working underneath her leadership yeah. Well, let's talk about that because I, I know you guys work together and you've shared, you know, just a little bit about that uh, just now. But I, I want to kind of back up and understand first, just to kind of put a bow on the on the marriage piece. How did you, was it working just with that couple or were there other others that sort of gave you the tools when you talk about how you learned to fight, how you learn to resolve conflict, um, how you get from that 30 days of hell and one day of heaven to the reverse. What was it? How did you do that work? Well, one thing, a lot of counseling, therapy, coaching, um, that couple got us going, but they introduced us to a, a leader that got us to another guy and his wife, and they made the biggest impact. They had been married for 15 years. He cheated on her the whole time in our town, left her, and for five years married another lady, had a devastating thing in his life, and came back and reconciled with his original wife. And for the next 15 to 17 years, they taught young couples. And so we met with them two times a week for seven years. Mm-hmm. And he loved me like a daddy and taught me. Mm-hmm. And he showed me how to reconcile, how to forgive, how to live. And he was coaching and and doing therapy for couples. And he, I sat in the room you know, for years. In the mm-hmm. corner, he said, be quiet and listen, you'll learn. And I just watched him reconcile couples. So, I, I, I mean, seven years, you know, we and and today, today, we still have coaching therapy. Yeah. We have all the things. It's ongoing, yeah. but it's learning to learn. Yeah. And 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 there's the core things are the two things that you got to know how to love and you got to know how to forgive and how to deal with the nuclear waste that's in the basement. Without that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tell people, if I can get you on the track of, of 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 learning how to love your person you want to be in a relationship with, how to forgive them, and how to deal with the nuclear waste that is in your basement, and it's always in there. We put new concrete over it, put some carpet, mm-hmm. nuclear waste is going to come, it's coming right back. Mm-hmm. And we know this when we have a, start a fight about microwave popcorn and end up on your mama and your daddy and you remember when and all mm-hmm. that stuff. I say every fuss we had was not just hysterical, it was historical. Mm-hmm. And my wife had whipped my butt in a historical battle because she'd remember everything like from the time we met the current. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we got kept it. having the same conflicts over and over and over. And we'd gotten so good at them. It was like our kids could say what we were about to say. Mm-hmm. And tell me, okay, I'm, I'm, that's helpful. And I think what I'm hearing is just, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of things. It's counseling, it's therapy, it's coaching. It's, you know, sort of Spiritual sometimes. Things, right. It's, it's yeah. loving and helping others as you, as we sure. give it, we get it. I mean, we're still, I, when I say stuff, I think, man, I need to be doing more of that. I didn't drop the ball on that thing. I just told them they need to be doing. Right. Yeah. You learn a lot, you know, um, when uh, it's, I like the saying that um, when one coaches to learn, 
you know, mm. one teaches to learn, <laughs> you know, because uh, every experience I've ever had as, you know, a mentor or coach or advisor, I always learn um, mm. from, you know, the others, which is, again, sort of part of the reason I love doing this podcast is like, I get to learn um, through other journeys. So let's talk about the 25 companies you last shared your uh, auto uh, business, but mm. what, 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 were the 25 companies just, you know, broadly, like how did that become a thing? Is that part of the addiction that you just could never get enough and kept starting more and more and more? Yeah. And just, you know, we've started over 60 businesses in our career. So, and a lot of them have failed, you know, I mean, I fail, I say I crashed more businesses than most folks ever started first high energy, low IQ is a powerful combination. You know, and so I just start stuff because I was excitable and still am excitable. My wife says I'm entrepreneurially promiscuous. <laughs> and so I haven't, if I love somebody or something, I want to be in business with them. I think that's one of the greatest loves I can do. So what the main part of that, we were in construction, real estate development. We were doing our leasing company. We started architectural salvage business. We, of course, was in the, you know, it's, but every business had a lens of taking things that are broken and making them beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everything. It all had a redemptive lens to it because not only was that what I wanted to do, it's what I needed. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was going to happen in my life. Today, of course, as I told we steward places. We steward 12 cities around America, close to $2 billion of redemptive real estate. Mm-hmm. Plus what we've done here. And it's still redemptive. It's still seeing things. I have never seen a marriage that can't make it. I had never seen a building that should be hardly torn down. I mean, mm-hmm. I just have this lens of hope. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think, you know, so much of it came out of that brokenness we went through. Mm-hmm. It cemented in me that I'm I'm an ambassador of hope. That's what I'm built for. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but a mm-hmm. lot of times I'll encourage people all day long and come home totally discouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is fascinating to me because I also have sort of taken um, my life experience and attempted to, and still um, very much so, continue to attempt to um, create from that place uh, in hopes that it will uh, be to the benefit of other people. Um, however, it's uh, largely uh, through the lens of business. And so um, in recent years, I've sort of started looking at that and questioning, you know, how much of this is still tied to that part of me that was conditioned that success and and money and things and, you know, not enoughness and, you know, uh, the validation and praise and and whatever else is still there. I mean, I've sort of been um, in in some ways and it's not it's not insincere. It's just that um, I wonder uh, how much of my desire still for those things is being masked in the doing well for other people, you know? Um, and, and you know, I, I've sort of come to a good place with that and, you know, continue to um, shift and shift what I do and how I do it and what, what I spend my time and uh, doing. But I'm curious for you, you know, and, and it's there's no judgment here. It's just curiosity. Uh, do you think that ultimately your desire to um, fix things, right? To the 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 hope and the 
um, taking broken things, you know, it, it will continue to manifest itself in the form of business. Do you see business as the best vehicle for um, fixing things? Not really. Yeah, I don't. I mean, one thing is we, you know, thank goodness, our first financial mentor group in a mill village with a high school education and ended up building the largest real estate company in the world at the time, Century 21. And he, when I met him, we sold him a vehicle when I was in the automobile business. He said, John, um, I'm going to treat you like my son. I said, oh, man, that's great. He liked me. And I said, what does that mean? He said, I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> but he said, I'm going to teach you everything I know. Mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds mm-hmm. great. So the first, he asked me three questions. He said, before I'll teach you, we've got to answer these three questions. How much is enough? What are you going to do when you get enough? What's your living plan and your giving plan? Mm-hmm. And so that how much is enough? We drew a financial finish line before we had the sense to, you know, we couldn't pay our $500 power bill, mm-hmm. which is not easy to do, you know, to think about. But we have enough. And so for me now, th- the reason I, I love working, I love our teams, I love doing that. But I see the next season of my life more focused on the thing that I think I'm most gifted in, which is influence. The young men that I speak into their life and mentor and the marriages we're helping reconcile. I mean, I was uh, talking to a young man the other day. And I mean, there's on on one call I do with these guys, there's three or four billion dollars worth of capital represented these young men steward. Mm -hmm. And a number of them, I've helped them reconcile their marriage and save their family. Mm -hmm. And so the influence that is, is more than a thousand coffee shops and a hundred mm-hmm. restaurants and mm-hmm. 10 cities. And so um, I don't know. It's re- it's really an interesting thing, but I do know one thing I, I love. The only thing I think that, that I realize still, I don't know how it could serve me is I have empathy because I suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so me yeah. being and doing the work, me and Ash still have over 200 properties in our 10 blocks and we're mm-hmm. still doing development here and we're still s- trying to say, I had a building one of our best buildings burned down a month ago to the ground, a restaurant in it that was the first building we've lost on this street in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. I mean, we sit there on a park bench, me and my oldest son, and it's burning down. It's 3 a.m. He's like, Daddy, is what we do worth it? Mm-hmm. I said, buddy, if it's just about money, I don't think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. But something about them knowing our clients and our people we work with, knowing I suffer too, and I'm living this stuff before mm-hmm. I'm trying to give it, that's the one thing I'm not sure how I could duplicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I appreciate your answer. I've sort of, like I said, been grappling with that. And um, for the most part, I um, believe that uh, business is not the best answer. Um, and yet, um, you know, I, I still sometimes find that the platform it provides is very valuable. And, you know, it's sort of a fine line there, you know, to what extent it's actually creating value or if it's sort of just a, a story, you know, um, and it's not, it's not actually that necessary. And there's better ways to actually make an impact and influence, you know, and, and how important is it just to go direct to that? And what happens if you put all of your energy into that, um, you know, would the, would the impact be even greater? <laughs> And, you know, I think, again, I don't have any regrets. And it sounds like, you know, from your standpoint, you know, everything, we we probably share this belief that it's all been serving us at every step of the way, you know? And so the question is, 
you know, now what, right? And those not enough questions are, are big ones. Um, so, well, and knowing know, knowing what you know, what will you do? Like, how will I? What will I do with the time I have left? Because I'm mm. on a treadmill trying to, you know, keep running away from death. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. keep. I want to leave a legacy on the hearts of men and not just sticks and bricks. Mm-hmm. So to do that, for me, it's just continuing to adjust. Like I, mm-hmm. we track all of our time. So if my calendar and my checkbook don't line up with my values, I'm deceived. The mm-hmm. key to being deceived is you don't know it. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do is we're just saying, okay, if this is your beliefs, and Ash and I, we have an elaborate way that we plan. We call it our five Fs, faith, mm-hmm. family, fun, fitness, and finance. Mm-hmm. We have a sophisticated plan for everyone. I mean, our plan for our family is just as sophisticated as for our money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think you can't manage what you don't measure. And so what we do is we say, we do this, the first exercise is this, I believe. And we do six, this, I believe, me and Ash in each topic, faith, family, fun, fitness, finance. And so they become the heartbeat of how we think about this thing. And so if we believe, if I believe that a reconciled marriage is of an invaluable, I mean, you can, it's, that, it's, it's of the most value for, for generations. It changes generations. And I need to do more of that. Mm-hmm. If, if I believe if I can, help someone come out of a wrecked life of of this thing with their families uh, if they're suicidal. So I'm trying to put my priorities in in the right direction and continue to adjust those. Mm-hmm. Boy, uh, I have so many questions and so much to um, learn, and I'd love to continue this conversation. We will off the air. I do want to make sure... I give you a little bit of time to share with the audience. You know, you've you've talked about the 200 properties and the 12 cities and the work that you're doing, but I, I want to really um, give you a chance to share exactly what you're doing with everybody so that people know, because it's beautiful and it's unique. And there's a reason why uh, you're so sought after. Um, because it's it's needed and it's wanted and people don't seem to know how to to do what you're doing. So maybe you could just speak to the work that you're you're doing from a community standpoint. Well, what we say we do is sophisticated real estate development with love. And we view historic places, downtowns from 800 people to about 180,000 as complex mixed-use developments. And we believe we can save cities and make them flourish. And we say our definition of flourishing is when the people who have the least are experiencing the most, a place flourishes. And so we call the work we do in the name of our podcast, redemptification. So think gentrification redeemed. Mm -hmm. And so we're saying I can mix age, I can mix race, I can mix um, economics, I just can't mix values. And Mm -hmm. so when we look at these places, we're viewing them as a place, how do we create human flourishing? And how do we make a difference in this place for its good that will last 50 years and nobody be able to undo it? Mm -hmm. Now, what we're looking for is measuring three things, social, spiritual, and economic capital. We believe most developments only speak to economic capital, and so they leave the social and spiritual out. And we say private equity oftentimes can take the love out of sex. You know, they're Mm -hmm. they're spreadsheet guys. And the, 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 the days of the master builder who built with intention and love is is about we don't see that much anymore. But what if you love makes all the difference? I mean, it's it's for love's sake 
that so many things happen that are really magical that we love about these places. So we call the work we do dedicated to irreplaceable real estate. You say, well, why is it irreplaceable? Well, it's built by people who don't live anymore with materials we don't have anymore, methods we don't do anymore, with entitlements we can't get approved anymore. That's Mm -hmm. irreplaceable. And Mm -hmm. so what we've done is made that our work. And so we started in our town, we've done over 285 properties in 10 blocks, and we started over 60 businesses to save our town. Mm -hmm. And that gave us the models we need for going and doing other places. So now we're in cities in the northernmost cities, Alito, Illinois. Our biggest city is way down in the south in Florida, Winter Haven, Florida. And our westernmost city is Arvada, Colorado, and there's ones in between. Mm-hmm. What we need to do this, we need a person of peace. We call a patron. We need someone there who will love the place. And we need five eyes represented on the minimum viable team. Influence, ideas, intercession, implication, and investment. And we look for somebody to represent those and to be underneath this person of peace, and we can impact that place. We don't have a method that works without amazing food and beverage. We have to build iconic restaurants. As bad as we hate it, we we were building restaurants all the time in these towns to make them a place people want to visit, and we can't do it without overnight stay. Mm -hmm. Those are two things we use as anchors that leverage the rest of it. And then it's just sophisticated plans of, of, of thoughtfulness about how do you love a place and make that place flourish? And, um, and, and then we use great models. I mean, when we're building a restaurant, we think about it from the capital down. The capital has to be patient, properly aligned, and productive. Mm. And, it, and from the bottom up, we ask ourselves not what could the restaurant pay, but what should it pay? Mm-hmm. It's a different question. And so we start, the the restaurant informs the investment. The investment doesn't inform the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we bring really unique alignments because a dollar of rents is worth more than a dollar of operational income. So we align those in a unique way that can bless the investor for the risks they're taking as well. Yeah, yeah. That That's sort of the piece that I, I want to unpack with you a little bit, just Quickly now and and definitely you know in more detail as you and I maybe you know connect again off air. But um, the I I I think there's a lot of people, um, myself included, who share your beliefs and who maybe are even trying to figure out how to get this all to work. In my case, the capital piece is the hardest part because most capital is not patient. Most capital does not share the the values, is not willing to kind of uh, uh, do well and do good, right? And, and so that has been the biggest challenge for me. And maybe it's because our projects are scale where you need to raise you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, or maybe it's just I haven't found... Uh, enough of the right people. And we have some, I have, I've been yeah. blessed with, with some investors who truly get it and are, are saints to, to work with. Um, and, and, and by the way, uh, I do believe that patience isn't even uh, as much about time. It's sort of more even about like belief because I, I actually believe that by doing things, through the lens of of value and and um 
you know, uh, integrity and, and, you know, uh, intention for everybody to win, you can create better returns, but it's, it's hard to demonstrate that on the spreadsheet, you know? And so I'm just kind of curious how you have sort of been able to unlock the right capital to allow you to uh, do the things the way that you are. Uh, what you're saying is true, and and, and really, it, it, and most people come to us either they're very wealthy and capital is not a problem, or they don't have a lot in capital they think is totally the problem. And we think it's never the problem, honestly. What we think is clarity of a, a vision helps you accelerate towards your goal. You know, if if the promise is clear, the price is easy. Mm-hmm. If the promise is fuzzy, no price is cheap enough. And the hardest thing for us to do as pioneers in this space that we both are in some ways, and we 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 believe we're creating a new asset class of real estate. So our largest town is about a two hundred million dollar portfolio, and we've raised sixty, well now eighty million from sixty locals. And mm. so we're doing this at scale now and deploying a good bit of capital into this. And we we think we we're 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 right now working on the idea of doing a, a one billion dollar fund to do what we're talking about. And I've been offered half a billion twice in the last six months over what we're doing. So the returns can be exceptional. It's mm. not an issue of that, but but it is what we don't, I think, do, can't do easily is, is show them, the investors and the capital, where they fit in the family photo. And mm-hmm. we have to prove to them why we're not just a little better or a lot better, we're exceptionally better. And what happens is we have to really break their guessing machine in front of them and reassemble it. So the short-term capital is hard to make long, great long-term decisions with short-term capital, right? And so they think fast returns and high IRRs is the game. Mm-hmm. And what they're missing, they're that's because private equity has taught them that. Mm-hmm. And we say, do you realize how much how much difficulty and how much struggle it is to redeploy capital and the risk to redeploy it and the velocity of the capital we get. The best capital in the world gets consistencies of return that is growing over decades. That's how people build fortunes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we work on. And see, if we're judged against a sheetrock box with drive it on it mm-hmm. and, a, and, and that extracts value but doesn't add value, we're, they're measuring, they're, they're, they're comparing two incomparables. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is say, I tell you what, you take the, the, the debt market, the banks have gotten us believing that amortization terms determine the value. So if a sheetrock box or mine and your fabulously designed things or our historic things are side by side, that they have the same value because they have the same rents. And that's totally untrue. That's one lens. Mm-hmm. The way we build and what we do will last a hundred years. And so amateurize the repairs and the improvements and the design and the efficiencies of these things over a longer period of time and your equations, theirs fall apart quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we say we have to look at it differently. And what we try to help teach our guys is the velocity of money. Like the longer it's deployed consistently in getting returns the more powerful that capital is. Because as we all know from school, if we had like two zeros in the whole year of our test averages, it took an A plus down to a C. Mm -hmm. And they're doing this to their capital all the time. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, This is amazing. I'm really enjoying uh, 
you know your your life and your business. It's uh, awesome. I'm I'm excited to continue the conversation. Um, as we wrap up, as we're running out of time, uh, take it wherever you want. What what do you want the audience to hear? Maybe it's it's something more about this kind of offering hope and 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 uh, I don't know how that might sort of just go across everything you're doing. But you take it wherever you want to wrap us up. Well, whatever it is, hope is the key. If you've got hope in your future, there's power in your present. And hope is like air. Everybody needs it. Mm -hmm. If you got a rebellious child, the number one thing they need is the thing they least deserve, which is praise. Mm -hmm. And if you'll just praise them, it'll change them. Mm -hmm. Get the shoes, stick it out from under the table. Say, you're the best shoe tire I've ever seen. Oh, stop saying that. That's stupid. Next thing you know, they'll be sliding their foot out so you'll see it. Mm -hmm. We all need hope. We all need praise. We all need encouragement. And um, and I want to tell you that if you want to know what's going to bring you the most fulfillment in life is figure out what in the world you were designed to do. We have a purpose. We have there's the reason that we've been good at and successful at some things and not at others is because we got lined up with who we're built to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a, I'd be a horrible bread. I have enough trouble being John. Just figure out who you're supposed to be and be that. Mm -hmm. And um, believe me, yeah. money is never the problem. Money follows vision. Vision doesn't follow money. I, if, amen. If clarity of vision. And so mm -hmm. figure out who you are and work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Yeah. Amen. Well said, John. Hey, thank you for all the wisdom and for your journey and for the um, sort of, uh, you know, all of it. You know, I, I really have a, a sincere appreciation for the suffering as much as I do for the success. You know, I, I, I want to, I want to praise you for, for suffering as mm. much as I want to praise you for, um, you know, the incredible uh, work you're doing for building communities and, and just thanks for sharing all of it and living all of it and uh, living it so that you can share it. And thanks for just taking some time to, to share it here on on our podcast. You're amazing, man. I've, I've loved getting to know you a little bit and see how your hope and your vision. I love guys that have more vision than they could ever have money and uh, that you would just encourage people and do good and do well. So thank you. It's a blessing. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 